We find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 32. We're going to continue our study and we're going to finish the chapter. We're going to begin in verse 26 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning in verse 26, we read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face because of all of the evil. Of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned to me the back and not the face, though I taught them rising up early and teaching them. Yet they have not listened to receive instruction But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination and cause Judah to sin. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord. The God of Israel concerning this city, which you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I promised them. And the fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy 
fields for money and sign deeds and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 32, the prophet Jeremiah was imprisoned for his faith. But even in prison, Jeremiah is being used by God. And the Babylonian army has been sieging the city. The Egyptians have come up to try and attack them. There's a temporary respite. Jeremiah is in prison. And the Lord commands Jeremiah to purchase a field from a near relative in, the, in his hometown and as, as a sign and a symbol of hope. The problem They're in the midst of a war and the relative is coming saying, hey, I want you to buy this piece of land. Oh, really? Yeah, it's occupied by the Babylonian army and um, it isn't going to be worth anything to me. So I thought maybe I would sell it to you. And he's wondering, help me understand, Lord, why you're asking me to do this. And the reason we discover, again, as a sign and a symbol of hope that that Jerusalem and Judah have a future. So we've looked at Jeremiah's persecution in verses 1 through 5. The purchase of the property in verses 6 through 8. The prayer that Jeremiah prayed in verses 16 through 25. And remember, the prayer was seven parts praise and one part perplexity. Lord, you're great, you're good, this is wonderful, but I don't get this whole thing about buying the land. Jeremiah acknowledges God's sovereignty over Israel and and the past and the future. When he comes to the end of the prayer, remember, (laughs) he says towards the end of his prayer in verse 24, Look, uh, the siege mounds. They've come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and the famine and the pestilence. What you have spoken has happened, and see, here it is. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, okay, Lord, everything that you said would come true, it's coming true. In verse 26 to the end of the chapter is God's reply to Jeremiah's prayer. Jeremiah will receive an answer and the answer is going to come in the form of a series of promises. The promises include statements about God's omnipotence, about God's objectives for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He's punishing the people because they've rebelled and disobeyed and sacrificed to idols. And so God has allowed war and famine and pestilence. And by the way, there's the principle God answers prayers. People will often ask me, well, does God hear the prayer of an unbeliever? Hey, God hears everybody's prayer. But he doesn't have any obligation whatsoever to respond to the prayer of the unbeliever other than for their repentance to turn to him. Now, is God sovereign and is he limited by what Gino says? No, God can do whatever God wants. He can listen to whomever he wants to listen to. But the promises of God to the believer are yes and amen. 
And so God's objectives are going to be realized. In God's reply to Jeremiah, he says in verse 26, I'm the Lord. I'm the God of all peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? And now, and in the next chapter, he reveals some of those objectives about the punishment and the purification of his people. And so, someone has said, God's delays are not God's denials. He has heard your prayer. He knows all about your trials. No, he cares. God's delays are not denials. Help is on the way. He's watching over life's dials. Bring forth that day. God's delays are not denials. You will find him true. Working through the darkest trials. What is best for you? And so he's going to answer the prayer. In verse 26, look what it says. Then the word of the Lord came To Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Pause. Does this mean that God is the God of all flesh? What does he mean by flesh? He means human beings. He means the the sum and the substance of all of the people who dwell on the planet. He is not an Anglo-Saxon God or an Irish God or a black God or a brown God. He's not simply the God of the Chinese or the Japanese or the Central and South Americans or African. He claims to be the God of all humanity from the very top of the North Pole to the bottom of the South Pole. Yes, even the four million people who live above the Arctic Circle. And struggle to survive. And it says, is there anything too hard for me? He actually invites you to answer the question. Is there anything too hard for me? And of course, as a young, stupid person, I would use that scripture in the religious tradition I grew up. I would say to the Roman Catholic priest, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? And the priest would say, Well, now, Mr. Geraci, quite the smart man you are. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Then he would pray that famous prayer. May you be in heaven a half an hour before the devil knows you're dead. What's the right answer to that question? God is not stupid. He's not going to make a rock so big that he can't lift it. What is the purpose of the passage? Is there anything too hard for me? The reality, when you ask that question, should come to you like a bolt of lightning. Is it too hard for God to love you? To forgive you? To reconcile you? Some of you have prayed a prayer. Lord, I think it's impossible for me to change. Is there anything too hard for God? Is there anything that he can't do? 
Here's the idea. The Lord hears the prayers of all who know him and believe him. And note, Jeremiah records God's answer to prayer. And and it began in verse 17 earlier. Ah, Lord, God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. And the Lord responds to that prayer and he goes, you're right, Jeremiah. You're absolutely correct. He reveals his identity. He reveals his possession. He reveals his omnipotent power. And the suggestion is that God can act according to his own great power. And here's the idea. He can fulfill his promise anytime he chooses. He's not on your timetable and he's not on my timetable. But he will do everything that he's promised to do. Earlier in Jeremiah, he has praised the power of God. He has even included a little perplexity. And I think that this is important for each and every one of us, because sometimes people will erroneously think, don't make a negative confession. Don't confess that. Don't express doubt. But Jeremiah does. He praises him. He says, Lord, I understand this about you, but I don't understand that. God isn't intimidated by our ignorance or our inconsistencies. He says, is there anything too hard for me? And by the way, what is the other question you should ask of verse 27? How will you show your power, God? You said that you could do anything. How will you demonstrate that power? That's part of the answer to to the question. He will demonstrate his power, number one, by executing judgment against Judah in verses 28 through 35, but also by setting his people free from their captivity and returning them to the promised land. All of the answer becomes in part the answer to the question that's been asked, Lord, how will you show your power? And how will he show his power in your life? How will he reveal himself to you concerning the circumstance in your life? Is it okay for you to say, Lord, will you work in my heart and will you work in my life and will you work in my circumstance? But it begins with a demonstration of power concerning the punishment. Look what it says in verse 28. Therefore says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall take it over and over again. They've resisted, but Jeremiah reveals this is a part of God's plan. And the Chaldeans who fight against the city shall come, and they're going to set fire to this city, and they're going to burn it. By the way, archaeological evidence indicates that that's exactly what happened in, um, in 599 um, B.C. And also in 604, Nebuchadnezzar will march against Egypt through Palestine. After the Battle of Carchemish, he will come back up. He's going to capture Ashkelon. He's going to come back to Jeremiah. And by the way, even to this day, there are, there's archaeological evidence of the series of sieges and, and battles that have been fought against the city. It says, and on the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out the drink offerings to other gods to provoke me 
to anger. Now, this really upsets people. Do you know, why do you always have to talk about like God's anger and wrath? I mean, you know, God's love, that's very cool. God's anger. Rather than deal with that right at this very moment, and I am going to deal with it. I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. What provokes God to anger? And how are we to think about the anger of God? You see, there are many, many people who suggest that somehow talking about God's anger or even thinking about God's anger is not a good idea. But in Romans chapter one, verse eight, Paul writes, for God's anger is being revealed from heaven against all impiety. That means irreligiousness and against iniquity. That's the sin of men who through iniquity suppress the truth. In other words, Paul says, no, there really is a God and God really does get angry. In other words, people's rebellion and resistance against God and the sins of people and those who suppress the truth, it really does create a problem. And we understand that in the world in which we live, if you've ever gone to a restaurant, have you ever gone into a restaurant and the kids are just running wild and they're yelling and they're screaming and they're bound against the wall and you look over that and you think, why don't, don't, don't these kids have parents? Don't they discipline them? Do, we, do you live in a world where, and did you grow up in a world where your mother and your father said, honey, whatever you want. You, you don't want to go to bed? You don't have to go to bed. You don't want to eat? You don't have to eat. You, what, look, you're the sovereign of the universe. Whatever you say goes. Is that any way to raise children? So if you being wicked and evil know that you have to provide discipline and direction for your children, you th- then you balk at the fact that God wants to provide discipline and direction for you? Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. Because people are happy to express the love of God, but they're reluctant to talk about God's anger what they typically will wind up doing is mocking God. I was in New Orleans when my father died, and I was in the French Quarter, and I saw a person wearing a a T-shirt. It said, Jesus is coming back. And boy, is he, and then there was a P and an asterisk and an asterisk and an asterisk and a D. And I'm looking at this shirt, and I'm thinking, really? Do you think mocking God is going to help your circumstance? You see, God's anger isn't like human anger, but it shares some of the qualities of human anger. Do you even understand why you get angry? The Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. If God is a perfect God and if he made you with a perfect set of emotions and one of those emotions is anger, what are you supposed to do with anger? What is the purpose? Why did God give people the capacity to be angry? And the answer is he gives people the capacity to be angry so that you can solve problems. The Bible says be angry, but don't sin. Anger is supposed to give you the emotional energy necessary to solve problems. And so you you look at the problem and you start ripping into the problem because you want to tear through that problem. 
The real problem, most people blow up or they clam up. But the Bible says, don't blow up and don't clam up, grow up. We typically define the problem in terms of the other person. You know what the problem is? You're the problem. And so we tear into them. God's anger is motivated and and informed by his perfect character. God's anger is motivated because he needs to deal with the very problem of sin. His holiness requires it. His justice demands it. In Romans chapter 1 verse 32 it says, They know well enough the last, the just decree of God, that those who behave like this deserve to die, and yet they do it. Not only so, they actually applaud such practices. Paul in Romans chapter 1 basically says, Human beings know that this is wrong. But for some people... They pretend like it isn't wrong. They pretend that God isn't really watching. And so they read Romans 1. They know well enough the just decree of God that those who behave like this deserve to die. And they stop in the text and they go, what? Wait, wait, time out, time out. Those who behave like this deserve to die. And yet they do it. We... We think about this and we go, wait a minute. Offending God means you deserve to die. Lying to God, cheating, lying, cheating, stealing. Well, you know, lying, cheating and stealing, all of those things are bad, but they shouldn't be capital offenses. Well, what should be a capital offense? You know, something really bad. Like what? Well, like murder. But Jesus says if you kill people in your heart, if you hate them, you've committed murder. The Bible says that the punishment should be in direct proportion to the person who's offended. If you offend me or if you offend somebody down the street, if you offend the governor of the state of Colorado, if you offend the president, you're going to notice that the punishment is going to be in direct proportion to the dignity of the office that the person occupies. And here is the God who is the creator of all things. He is the God of all flesh and the creator of the universe. What does he deserve? And the Bible says that God is holding back his anger and that God is patient and God is giving people an opportunity to repent. And in his mercy and his and his patience is sometimes mistaken as apathy and indifference and maybe even approval. Some people believe that they're getting away with their sin. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that every sin will be accounted for and no one will get away with anything. And C.S. Lewis writes, quote, God is the only comfort. He's also the supreme terror. The thing we need most and the thing we hide from most. He is our only possible ally and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They're only playing with religion. 
Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we've reacted the wrong way, unquote. What's the right way? What's the right way to respond to his beauty and his majesty and his dignity and his holiness? Paul, in the book of Galatians, chapter six, verse seven, writes, don't be under any illusion. God is not mocked. You can't make a fool out of God. A man's harvest in life will depend entirely on what he sows. Each and every person will get exactly what they deserve. Do you think God enjoys punishing the wicked? In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21, it says, But if a wicked man turns from his sins, which he has committed, keeps my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. In verse 23, Ezekiel 18, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and that he should And not that he should turn from his ways and live. Verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent and turn from your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. In Ezekiel 18.31. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed. Get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies says the Lord God therefore turn and live what is motivating him that's exactly right he's motivated by love he's motivated by patience he's motivated by grace he's motivated by mercy Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote quote before I begin to think and consider the love of God and the mercy and the compassion of God I have to Start with the holiness of God. When your friends and your family say, well, I thought God was a God of love. And you need to be able to affirm that he is. The Bible says God is love. But the Bible also says that God is holy. And that he's just. So what has prompted the punishment? What has provoked the anger? Look what it says in verse 30. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. This isn't, well, you know, I caught a a couple of kids stealing some apples. Dude, I caught them shoplifting at Safeway or King Supers. No, they have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel... Underline it, have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. In other words, what's provoked them? Wow, everything that they do from the time that they were able to do it. Verse 31, for this city, this is the city of Jerusalem, has been a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face. Wasn't there ever a time when they actually honored God and obeyed God and instead of embarrassing God? Uh, The answer is no. 
because all of the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, verse 32, which they have done to provoke me to anger, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Well, you're just talking about the leadership, right? It's just the leadership that's corrupt. No. From the leadership on down at every level, in every circumstance, the rich and the powerful and the poor and the young and the old. Look what it says in verse 33. And they've turned to me the back and not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. They've rebelled. They've disobeyed. They've sacrificed to idols. Verse 34. But they set up their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. He's talking about the temple. The temple that was built in order to honor God. They literally brought idols into the temple and defiled it. Verse 35. And they built the high places of Baal. This is the Canaanite God of the weather, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them in the ancient world. What they would do is they would they believed in what was called polytheism and henotheism. The idea was the idea that there were many, many gods, but you were supposed to pick one God in particular and only worship that God. But these people began to worship all of the gods of all of their pagan friends, and they begin to carry out this worldview. And in their worldview, they thought that Baal controlled the weather, and they thought that Ashtar controlled fertility. And they began to think that maybe these other pagan deities had some sort of an effect on their life and they were told that if they would sacrifice their children it would appease their anger and they would receive all of the benefits so they would build bronze statues to Molech and they would make the, the Molech have arms that would extend like this of solid brass and they would build a fire underneath it and they would literally place their children on the molten metal of the arms of the deity as they glowed. And they would sacrifice their children and burn them to death. I want you to pause for just a moment. In those verses, how many reasons have provoked the children of God to anger? What have they done? Excuse me, excuse me. God, you're angry? Now tell me again, why are you angry? <clears throat> persistent idolatry, persistent wickedness, persistent disobedience, persistent and pervasive disobedience at every level, persistent rejection of God, persistent stubborn refusal to change, persistent defiling of the temple, the people built false worship centers and then offered their own children in sacrifice. You know, I'm really, you know, I'm not good with a God who's angry. If somebody came to you and every single day they slapped you and every day they kicked you and every day they made life miserable for you and every day they threatened you and harassed you. And then one day they kidnapped your children and then they killed them. 
what would you do? I certainly wouldn't get angry. Really? Again, if you're imperfect and you can't express emotion in a perfect way, and if you can't concede that God expresses emotion in a perfect way, then you're not going to understand about this provocation to anger. But when the Lord makes this kind of statement to the children of Israel, to the people of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you ask this question, what provokes God to anger in my life? Persistent idolatry, persistent wickedness, persistent disobedience, persistent rejection of the Lord, a stubborn refusal to change or respond to discipline. You don't think that that's going to create a problem in your life and in your walk and in the circumstances of your heart? And you might not build statues. And you may have never have gotten an abortion. You've never killed your children. But you need to ask and answer the question. How much do you think that God should put up with before he draws a line in the sand and he says, this has got to stop. This part of your life has to be over. And I need you to go in a different direction. And in verse 36, look what it says. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine and by the pestilence. He begins this portion that the punishment is going to lead to purification. Sometimes punishment comes as a consequence to bad behavior. Discipline is in order to affect a change. And you'll notice even with the Lord, how he has been progressive in his discipline. He said over and over again, I've warned you. I've pleaded with you. I've begged with you. I've been patient and long suffering. But now guess what? Things have come to a head And this issue of rebellion and disobedience is going to be dealt with. But it's also going to lead to a series of promises. What does purification mean for the people of Judah and Jerusalem? So he he talks about this punishment and the discipline that must happen. And then he says the people are going to be regathered and restored in verses 36 and 37. The people are going to be given a new heart and a new mind to worship the Lord in verses 38 and 39. The people are going to be given an everlasting covenant in verses 40 through 42. And then the people are going to experience this outpouring of love and generosity and prosperity in verses 43 and 44. And by the way, it's going to talk more about the future in the next chapter where the people will experience joy and singing. They're going to be ruled by the Messiah, who's the son of David, it's going to talk about in the next chapter. So regathered and restored. Look what it says in verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. When did this happen? Some people suggest that it happened 70 years later. When Daniel sees a vision 
Ezra and Nehemiah return to the land from the places where they've been scattered. And that's true. But I'm going to suggest to you that it has a future and then it has a far future. Because in 70 AD, the Jews were once again dispersed. And in May 1948, Jews came from every continent other than Antarctica and the Arctic Circle. I don't get to think there were any Inuit Jews up in Greenland, but they came from everywhere. They returned to the land. He says that he's going to regather them and that he's going to cause them to dwell safely. In what sense? Securely. The word safely can also mean securely. That didn't happen when they returned from Persia. They were still under domination by the Persians, then by the Greeks, particularly Antiochus Epiphanes, and then by the Romans, and then they were scattered again. The Jews have never been safe. Now, again, it depends on what you mean by safely even now. And that's why I prefer the translation securely, because if the Jews believe anything about themselves right at this very moment, it is they understand that they have enemies, but they also understand that for the first time, for the first time, for the first time since David and Solomon were the king, they have the ability to protect themselves from every threat. And look what it says, a new heart and a new mind to worship the Lord. Look what he says. This is the promise. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Remember all of the things that has provoked God to his anger? I hope so, because we just went over it. But in spite of that, look at the promise. They shall be my people. And I will be their God. Why is this important to you? Be honest. You don't have to say it out loud. Just speak in the quietness of your own heart. Have you ever disappointed God? Have you ever let him down? Have you ever promised that you would do something and you didn't keep your promise? And then the devil whispered in, in your ear, you're not really a child of God. And God isn't really your God. Think of your hypocrisy and inconsistency. But here's what the Bible says. They shall be my people. And I will be their God. How is that even possible? Verse 39. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. God is promising. Remember what we read earlier He's the God of all flesh. Is there anything that's too hard for, for him? In order for you to be something that you're not, in order for you to be something that is acceptable in the sight of God, what has to happen? You're going to re require a whole new transformation. You're going to need a new mind and you're going to need a new heart and you're going to need a new outlook on everything. 
And the Bible says that God provides that in the person of Jesus Christ. I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. When is this, when is this going to happen? And has it already happened? I'm going to suggest to you that in one sense it has happened. When Jesus the Messiah showed up and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead, were there a group of Jewish people who with one heart and one way followed him forever? The answer is yes. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's still a future revelation and a future revival that's going to take place. That's going to incorporate the Jewish people, the new and the everlasting covenant. Look what it says in verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Remember in the Bible, God gives a series of covenants. In the Hebrew language, it's called beret. Remember what a covenant is. It's an agreement between two parties To execute promises. God made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with David. But then Jesus comes along. And you all know the story because we talk about it on a regular basis of the last week of Jesus's life and the day before his execution, how he gathers everyone together and they have one final Seder, one final Passover. He talks about the fact that that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed. And he calls this the new and the everlasting covenant, a covenant that he initiates, a law of righteousness, spirit, faith, liberty freedom perfect one that can't be broken one that won't require any kind of renewal and so remember a covenant took two forms one that was conditional that means it was conditioned on the response of the party and then one that was unilateral or unconditional and i'm going to suggest to you that this one is an unconditional covenant where god says look i said i would do this and i am going to do it i am going to make a mechanism whereby you can have a new heart and you can have a new mind and you can have a new soul And you can have a new future that everything that used to be wrong about you can be made right and every sin can be forgiven and every hope realized in the future. And so in the Bible, God makes a covenant with all repenting sinners to save them through the Lord Jesus Christ in Titus chapter one, verse one in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. And here the Lord makes a promise that he will Bring the people of Israel not only back to the land, but back to an even more important position to himself. He makes a promise that he will forgive their iniquity and he will forget their sin. And what is the basis of the agreement? The Lord will put his fear in their hearts so that they won't depart from him. And what are some of the benefits for the rest of the world? Think about it. God is going to allow the Jews to become a major instrument of revival and evangelism 
in the future. Because I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what's going to need to happen. Because the world is headed for judgment. And right before this catastrophic judgment, people are going to need to know that there's a basis of hope. And in verse 41, look what it says. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart. That means not in a half-hearted way. Not in a speculative kind of way. And with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, and it did happen, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. Remember what the New Testament says? Do not despise the day of discipline. Why? Because it proves something about your identity. That you are a son. That you are a daughter. Why is it important for you to embrace the discipline of God? Because if you are willing to embrace the discipline of God, you'll also be able to embrace all the promises of God. And that's the point. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will plant them in verse 41. With all my heart. Verse 42. For thus says the Lord. Just as I have brought all this great calamity. I will bring on them the good that I have promised them. The Lord asserts his right. Think about this. To punish. To discipline. But also to keep his promises. For the person who says. You know. I'm really confused about this God of anger. Let me help you. Remember, there is a just God who hates sin and must deal with it. Because he hates sin, he must deal with it. But also because he hates sin, he's going to have to make a mechanism whereby the sinner can become a saint. And the only way that a sinner can become a saint... Is to recognize and receive the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. Hudson Taylor wrote, the prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness and failure and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Quote, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. You know what he's quoting? Chapter 33. Look what it says in verse 3. Call to me and I will answer you. And show you great and mighty things which you don't know. That's the challenge. In verse 43 it says, And fields will be bought in this land of which you say, It is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Remember the seven parts praise, the one part perplexity. And now Jeremiah begins to understand that this city and this place And its future is going to have a dramatic unfolding. 
Can you think of any 15 acres on the planet Earth that's more incredible than that Temple Mount right smack dab in Jerusalem? What is it about that place that Jews revere? What is it about that place that Christians are intoxicated by it? What is it about that place that Muslims gravitate to it? Why is this place the most contested piece of property on the planet Earth? What if I said to you, because God has a plan for it. Don't you ever wonder why you're contested? Don't you ever wonder why Satan fights so strongly to keep you in his camp? Don't you wonder why you're inundated with temptation and trial? Don't you wonder why the struggle is so difficult? It's because God has a plan for you. Men will buy fields for money. They will sign deeds and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord, not metaphorically, not allegorically, not hopefully it's going to happen. And that's why for centuries. Bible teachers said. Israel's going to become a nation again. No, you don't understand. People don't get displaced from their homeland thousands of years ago only to return. Did that happen with the Babylonians? Did it happen with the Persians? Did it happen with the Assyrians? Did it happen with any other great empire in history? The answer is no. The Lord has both the right and the power to guarantee the return and the restoration of his people. The promise is repeated and it's emphatic and not one single word or one single promise will fail. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. William Barclay said, Jesus is the yes To every promise of God. Is anything too hard for God? God, how in the world can you forgive my sin? Jesus. God, how can you cleanse my heart? Jesus. How can you make me acceptable in your sight? Jesus. How can you provide for me a future? Jesus. How can you make me free? Jesus, how can I live a life that's pleasing to you? Jesus, how could I possibly change? Jesus. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away in Luke 21, 33. Jesus says, verily, verily, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot, not one tittle shall in any wise pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And what is that law? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read it. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy. For one generation? No. Ten generations? No. A hundred generations? No. 
for a thousand generations. By the way, are you still within the thousand generation? Has a thousand generations come and gone? Are you still technically eligible? Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 7. With those who love him, with those who keep his commandments, and he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Here's what the passage is saying. God doesn't ambush the sinner. God doesn't sneak up on the sinner. God doesn't just eliminate him like some assassin. God confronts the sinner face to face. And deals with him. In verse 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Martin Luther said, if God promises something, then faith must fight a long and bitter fight for reason or the flesh judges that God's promises are impossible. Therefore, faith must battle against reason and its doubts, unquote. Paul writes in Galatians 5, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. Why is it so hard being a Christian? Why is it so hard? I want you to think about this for just a moment. Do you remember what happened before you became a Christian? It wasn't hard. You just simply gave in to temptation. You just simply catered to your flesh. There was no struggle. There was no drama. You just simply assessed whether or not you thought you could realistically get away with it. The very fact that there's a struggle, the very fact that there is a deep divide, the very fact that you cry out in your heart, Lord, I want to know you and Lord, I want to love you and Lord, I want to believe you. Ethel Bell wrote, the acid test of our faith and the promises of God is never found in the easygoing, comfortable ways of life. But in the great emergencies, in the times of storm and stress, in the days of adversity, when all human aid fails. The test? Will you love him? Will you honor him? Will you believe him? Will you walk with him? Will you turn your back on him? Matthew Henry says, on these, the promises of God, we are to build our expectations from God. And in all temptations and trials, we have to rest our souls upon. In other words, it is the promise of God. It is the promise of God that provides us safety and shelter in the storm. We can run into the promise. We can hold on to the promise. We can embrace the promise. And that is God's reply to Jeremiah's prayer. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, Lord, make us willing 
to receive what you give, to lack what you choose to withhold from us, to relinquish or give up whatever it is that you choose to take from us, to surrender what you lay claim to, to do as you command. And Lord, if you say stay, Lord, we'll stay. And Lord, if you say go, we'll go. Lord, we know that Jeremiah believed your promises and did that which seemed ridiculous. He bought into a future that was revealed by you. And Heavenly Father, I know that there are people within the sound of my voice who have been laughed at, who have been mocked, who have been scorned. Because like Jeremiah, they believe that this life isn't the only life. And that there's a real future. And Lord, I pray for each and every man and each and every woman who's made the conscientious effort to invest in the kingdom. And invest in God's work. And to invest in a future that the unbeliever can't see and may never see. But we thank God that you've opened up our eyes. That heaven is our real home. That, Lord, you've made promises in the here and in the now, but you've also made promises for the future. And, Lord, we want to walk into that future again, Lord, knowing that's where Jesus is. And so, again, Father, I pray for each and every man and each and every woman. Lord, I pray that you would stir up in their hearts faith. To hear the promise of God, to believe the promise of God, and to embrace the promise of God. In Jesus' name, amen.